Welcome, you are listening to LEAP, the podcast series that brings you interviews with leading scholars in law, economics and philosophy. We are Lynn Johnsudan, Jeroen van der Ven and Jaap Bai. With us today is uh, Liam Murphy, Herbert Peter Freund Professor of Law and Philosophy at NYU. He is a distinguished scholar, well known for his work in legal, moral and political theory. And today we will talk about his work in contract theory, notably on the relationship between the practice of promising and contract law. Professor Murphy, thank you for sitting down with us. Thank you for having me. Perhaps you can start with your idea on the object of study for contract law theories. In other words, what do you understand contract law to be? So I would say fairly simply that contract law is that body of legal doctrine concerned with the enforcement of agreements or unilateral promises, unilateral commitments, to use more neutral language. Um, Enforcement or an alternative formulation would be the body of law that provides a remedy for breach of agreement or breach of a unilateral commitment. And you have stated that the right starting point for normative legal theory is to uncover the internal normative structure of a particular branch of law in a particular place. And that the attempt to design an ideal system of, for instance, contract law would be a waste of time. Can you explain why you think that is the case? Well, waste of time might be putting it too strongly. Uh, The point is just that when you're doing normative theory, whether it's legal theory or moral theory, the only place to start is with views that people have already had about the subject. Um, You think about the way John Rawls thinks about political theory. He says the only way to start is by looking at the main um, positions that have been introduced in the tradition. Um, that's true for moral, moral and political theory. I think it's true for legal theory as well in that the way existing legal systems have dealt with a problem represents the grand ideas of the tradition about how we do this. So I think it would be very strange to uh, blind yourself to how other how societies around the world have thought about this topic. I think with contract law, It's particularly important because there's so much convergence among different uh, legal traditions in the content of their contract law. I think the the commonalities are much, much clearer or much, much stronger than the divergences. So you start with this um, as a way of getting going. It doesn't mean that you end with this. There are some people, such as the so-called formalists of the University of Toronto, who say the aim of legal theory is simply to uncover the normative structure of an existing system of law, common law of contracts, let's say. The kind of legal theory I'm interested in, it's not the end point, it's the starting point. We think about the views that have been uh, manifested in um, the common law and the civil law tradition, and then reflect on whether they make sense. A fundamental project for any contract law theorist is to answer the question of why laws should enforce agreements or promises at all. Here in contract law, we see many diverging answers, which you have grouped in three camps, a moralistic, a corrective justice, and an instrumental account. Can you elaborate on these different views? Yes. So I just said that there's a lot of convergence in the content of contract law, and that in stark contrast to that, there's a lot of divergence (laughs) in contract theory about why it would be justified uh, to have uh, a legal... uh, 
structure a legal institution with that content. So it's really kind of interesting that for a body of law that's as settled as contracts and as similar in different parts of the world, we have such different views. But that's not completely unusual. If you think about property law, another foundational sort of area of law that's found everywhere in the world, very different views about property law as well. So for contracts, uh, the moralistic view is just a view that says the point of contract law is to enforce moral obligations or to promote virtue. Um, this view is defended by Charles Fried uh, famously in his book uh, Contract as Promise, but I think it's a fairly um, pretty much a minority view. Um, the main action, I would say, is between the other two camps, corrective justice and instrumental accounts. So a corrective justice account doesn't see the point of contract law as enforcing moral obligations or promoting virtue. Its focus is not on the moral standing of the promisor. A corrective justice view focuses on the rights of the promisee. Um, so it's not illiberal in the way that you might say moralistic views are, because the point of contract law is not to make the promise or a better person. The point of contract law is to vindicate and protect the rights of the promisee. There are two different versions of it. Uh, probably in Europe, reliance theorists are not that widespread. It was very popular in the United States for about 30 years in the second half of the 20th century. This version of corrective justice held that um, Promises had a right to uh, recover their detrimental reliance losses. They had a right to rely on promises, and if the promise wasn't kept, what they should get in order to correct the injustice that was done to them is their reliance damages. And the, the more important one um, is a corrective justice view which focuses on the right of the promisee to performance. So what's contract law about? If a promise is broken, the promisee's rights are violated, Enforcing the contract um, undoes that wrong, uh, makes, makes the promisee whole. Okay. If you don't believe that promisees have moral rights independently of a practice of contract law, or at least an artificial social practice of making keeping promises, as I don't, you'll end up with an instrumental account uh, which sees the point of contract law not as the protection of the rights of anyone, but as the promotion of an overall, overall social good. So the point is not to focus on the promisee and say, she's being wrong, we've got to make that good. The point is to say, here's an institution that does a lot of good for all of us. We enforce uh, contracts in order to bring about the benefits of this institution. And those benefits are going to be overall welfare or um, and, that, and that's all economic analysis of law takes into account, the most well-known instrumental approach. But I would say we should have a richer account of the relevant social aims for instrumental accounts. So an instrumental account could aim at social justice as well as welfare. Um, there's a, it's, a broad, it's a broad range of views that fall under the uh, label instrumental. So you just defined what you uh, understand the instrumental account to be and alluded that you consider yourself to fall within this camp. And you've argued that um, your view is based on a practice-based account. Can you elaborate a bit more on the details of that account and can you distinguish um, it between the, the, the economic uh, account that you just defined? Yes, so I think I mentioned very briefly in passing that um, 
there are two practices uh, that I'm interested in. One is the legal practice of the enforcing of contracts. The other is the informal, conventional moral practice of the making and keeping of promises. And so one of the controversies within contract theory is what's the relationship between these two things. Um, for an instrumental theorist, um, you might be tempted to think we don't have to care about the promising thing, the informal conventional practice of promising, because we're just looking at contract law and asking about how it can achieve good effects. We're not interested in the morality. And that would be the standard response of law and economics. So the standard response of law and economics says we can completely ignore moral intuitions about uh, whether and why uh, promises that aren't legally enforceable should be kept. We're just going to ask what is the structure of contract law that would have the best effects. So my view about that is different. Um, though I don't think contract law is about enforcing moral obligations, it's not, it's not about uh, protecting the rights of promisees, there is an important connection between the legal practice of contract law and the informal moral practice, um, because I think the two reinforce each other. Mm. If we had more time, I would go into uh, Hume's theory of promising, David Hume, who's sort of, uh, my hero when it comes to uh, private law. Um, had the view that we couldn't explain promissory morality in terms of the rights and obligations of promisors and promisees. We had to think about it in terms of the benefits of an artificial or conventional social practice. So just as much as law is a social invention, obviously, uh, Hume thought um, promissory morality was as well. Um, the reason to keep your promise is not that... Uh, the promisee has a right that the promise be kept, but that um, there's a beneficial uh, conventional practice of the making and keeping of agreements. Um, so that's the way I understand promising. And then what do we think about contract? Contract simply is that same practice in legal form. So contract enforces and reinforces and supports this conventional moral practice of the making and keeping agreements. And so in that sense, I think there's a danger if uh, law reformers, legal theorists, recommend radical changes to contract law or a way of thinking about contract law which would be in tension to our intuitive conventional moral ideas about promising. I think the two should run together because they mutually support each other. So a practice-based promissory kind of contract law seems to rely on perhaps some clear consensus about what promising means and entails. For instance, that if you promise something, uh, you commit to actually doing what you've promised. Mm. Um, and as you've said already, contract law theorists tend to disagree about the relationship between contract and promise, partly because the diverging understandings of the latter, so uh, what promising entails. So the question is, is there really a clear characterization of a promise around which consensus has formed? Okay, so that's a great question. That's a challenge to what I just said in my answer to the previous question because I said we can't uh, tolerate or we should be wary of too great a divergence between the content of contract law and the content of the conventional moral practice. And your challenge is, but this conventional moral practice has very indeterminate content. We don't really have a, you know, social consensus on what promising morality requires. And I'm going to start by agreeing with you. Um, so, for example, in the very important work of Shauna Schifrin, in her by now 
classic paper on the divergence of contract and promise. She makes some claims about the content of promising morality um, and the divergence of contract law from promising morality so understood that strike me as implausible as a matter of moral theory. I don't agree with her account of the content of promissory morality. Um, and so that is to agree with you and put further pressure on me. Um, and just to go one step further with that, I don't think we have within our conventional informal moral practice ideas about remedies particularly. I don't think, um, maybe I'm just morally deficient, but I don't think I have a clear sense of what it is that I should do once I've broken my promise. <laughs> it seems odd to think that if I've broken my promise, I should then immediately switch to the remedial uh, obligation to, you know, uh, if it's too late to perform, uh, provide uh, money that's uh, just as good as the performance. In fact, that seems a little odd, morally speaking. I also don't have intuitions about mitigation of loss um, and so on. So does this mean that there's no there there for contract law to be matching onto? I don't think so, because I think the one thing, and this is the focus of my concerns about divergence, um, the one thing that we agree with is that if you make an agreement, exchange of promises, you make a promise, you should keep the promise. And we don't think, uh, for example, that you should only keep the promise if that's the best thing you can do in the circumstances. We, should, we don't think, oh well, uh, break the promise if you can uh, pay off the promise you make them just as well off as they would have been uh, whenever there's a better option for you, um, which is the implication of the um, idea of efficient breach within economic analysis of law. So I do think that there's that central element of promise and morality that should be kept, the idea that you should, keep your, you should keep your agreements. And legal theory or legal doctrine that makes it in some sense optional or even not a good idea to keep your agreement when there's something better to do, I think that threatens to undermine the sort of stability and clarity of the two practices together. So in your answer, you already uh, pointed out that there's no clear social practice about what should be done when one breaks a promise. Could you elaborate a little bit more on how your practice-based account may provide gui guidance for what contract law remedies should look like, or do you think that your account is silent on those areas? Of law? Okay, so that's uh, also a good question. I think um, the way I think about contract law remedies um, is not so much that they're compensatory. Um, I think of them, and this makes it consistent with what I said about this, this, the single main idea of promising morality, make a promise, you should keep it. I think we should think about contract remedies as enforcing the promise. So we shouldn't be arguing about reliance versus something else. What we should be thinking about is how can the law make it the case that the promise is kept, right? And this is different from... Um, you know, criminal law remedies, for example, obviously, you know, you've assaulted somebody. The question isn't how can you make it the case that you haven't assaulted somebody. The question is what should the sanction be? In contract law, we're trying to uh, put the world back in the position it would have been in if this promise hadn't been broken. And so that's why I think the remedies everywhere, with, you know, trivial exceptions and the unfortunate 
US doctrine of promissory estoppel being rather non-trivial exception, I guess. Um, but everywhere, the remedy for breach of contract is either a injunctive, a performance remedy, or expectation damages put the promisee in the position she would have been in if the uh, contract had been performed. So I think that shows that we can think of it not as how can we make the promisee whole. What we're doing is enforcing the agreement. And the reason why that's important is that the whole point of the practice of uh, contract is to support the informal moral practice of making and keeping agreements by giving people trust or giving people reasons to believe that if they enter into an agreement it will be kept right? because you don't enter into agreements with strangers without the law behind you because you won't bother because you don't have sufficient reason to think that the other side will perform so what contract law is doing is saying we'll make sure that this agreement is kept and that's how I think about uh, contract remedies if contract law's function is to support and embrace, as you put it, society-wide beneficial effects, we may also think of other socially beneficial aims, as you already alluded to, for instance, distributive concerns. It has, however, been a controversial position among contract law theorists to argue for a distributive conception of contract law. Uh, and in your view, can distributive aims be legitimately pursued through contract law, or rather, should contract law be compatible with distributive aims of a society? Yes, yeah, so the way I think about um, the central legal institutions of a market society, contract and property, is that they're part of a whole set of legal institutions and what we have to do is think about the whole set of institutions together and see whether they together are compatible with distributive justice, with that being one of our social aims, do they together bring about distributive justice we also want them to be welfare enhancing as well. But whatever our criterion of success is in the design of legal systems, we shouldn't think of um, each uh, area of law on its own. We should think of them all together. So yes, in principle, contract law should um, be designed in part with an uh, eye to distributive outcomes. The question is one of um, comparative institutional advantage or it's a question of institutional design, do we do better bringing about social justice by, for example, introducing mandatory terms into consumer agreements? Do we do better if we have some kind of fairness in the exchange policing of agreements? Or do we do better, as every economic analyst of law will insist, by leaving all that to other areas of law, to the taxation, the welfare system, and so on? So I think in general, my, so it's, it's not a, it's not in, in some sense, it's not really a philosophical question at this point. It's a question of, you know, what's the best way to design the overall set of legal institutions. My um, inclination on that is that the economic analysts of law are right on the broadest issue of the distribution of income, that um, once we've decided to go with marketplace as a way of uh, arranging our economic affairs, we know the marketplace is going to produce inegalitarian results that we can't tolerate. The best way to deal with that is not to put in a pricing controls, as it were, within contract law, but through um, taxation and transfer. That doesn't mean that there's no role for considerations of distributive justice 
in contract law on a more retail level. So there might be situations where it doesn't really amount to coercion, but there are certain kinds of exploitation going on in, in, certain, um, in certain kinds of uh, contract settings where you can't uh, fix the problem through the background structure of tax law and so on, and you have to have a doctrine of unconscionability, for example, uh, to deal with to deal with uh, uh, those issues. And similarly, consumer protection law all over the world recognises some of these problems. You know, regulates the kinds of interest rates that can be charged, and you would focus on interest rates rather than the contract price because perhaps because people are especially likely to make mistakes while not realising the implications of interest rates. So the answer is. It is a, a legitimate aim of contract law, but we have to think about this social aim um, um, from the perspective of the whole group of relevant legal institutions, and that leaves it an open question how much of the contract law doctrine should be specifically tailored to address distributive or fairness concerns. Professor Murphy, thank you for talking to us. Thank you for having me. This was LEAP, a podcast series of the Center for the Study of European Contract Law at the University of Amsterdam. The series is made in association with the Amsterdam Center for Law and Economics. For more information and more episodes, please visit us at www.jur.uva.nl. Thank you for listening.